Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captive free, to take away transgression and rule in equity. Our text for our sermon is the gospel history according to St. Luke, as recorded in chapter 22, verses 66 through chapter 23, verse 1. As soon as it was day, the council of the elders of the people met together, both the chief priests and the experts in the law. They brought him into their Sanhedrin and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer me or release me. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all said, Are you then the Son of God? He said to them, I am what you are saying. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? For we ourselves have heard it from his own mouth. The whole group of them got up and brought him before Pilate. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, during this Lent season, we are under the theme, Lenten Confessions Proclaimed by Christ's Enemies. And last time we met for our Lent series, we had that theme that came from the high priest himself, the high priest Caiaphas, spoken two weeks to two months before the events that take place in our text today, where he said, it's better that one man die for the nation than that the people bring themselves to ruination. And so it was then that they plotted to murder Jesus. Finally, they find the betrayer who will betray him and get him away from the crowds. And now they're having a court case. The court case isn't to determine if he's innocent or guilty. The court case is to find out what charges they can bring against him that the Romans will let them kill Jesus without being guilty of murder in the Romans' eyes. And so in all of that, we hear the next great confession For we ourselves had heard it from his own mouth. Imagine confessing that. Stop and think about it. We've heard and they got to hear the gospel even though these are the reasons why they're going to bring him to Pilate. There, now we've got it. Let's go get it, take him to the government so we can kill him. We don't bring this up tonight so that we can sit there and bash them for being such sinners. For certainly you and I have had our times when we haven't shown out the greatest either. But we look at their confession because it comes from unbelievers and it makes it even clear for us in our faith what we are clinging to. So tonight we see the Lenten confession proclaimed by Christ's enemies. We've heard it from his own mouth. But what have they heard from his own mouth? It all ties in with that very first question in verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. The Old Testament believers were looking for the Christ. The Greek word Christos is the same as the Hebrew word, which gets translated into English Messiah. So don't be fooled here. They're blatantly asking him, are you the Messiah? The Messiah that all the Old Testament pointed to. The Messiah that Isaiah had prophesied about. But some of the clearest passages about the coming Messiah, which means anointed one, are found in the Psalms. In fact, Psalm 2 is one of the clearest. I could make the whole sermon tonight on Psalm 2, but I'm just going to focus on two verses of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers join together against the Lord and against his anointed one. 
We would translate that today against his Messiah because he's the one who is anointed to this special role. And in verse 12 of Psalm 2, we're told, Kiss the son or he will be angry and you will be destroyed on your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. It becomes clear in Psalm 2 that the Messiah is a king and that he's not just an earthly king like David. He's the king over all creation. Kiss the son. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. But as we learned last week, they're looking for a different kind of Messiah. They got confused on that king thing. They think he's coming to chase the Romans out of town and reestablish the sovereign kingdom of Israel. And they feel like they got to get him out of the way because they figure if the Romans come in and take care of him, then they're going to lose their cush positions and their places in life. But they did hear it. They did hear that he's the Messiah. Jesus says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And the things that are confessed tonight all come in connection with his being the Messiah. It's important for you and I to know. Not only do you hear that he's the Messiah, even those who rejected him, the Sanhedrin, the group that was supposed to be making sure that all Israel was looking for the coming Messiah. They knew the Old Testament scriptures better than you and I, and they knew that they pointed to that coming Messiah. It's the point of the Old Testament. But we get to hear it because we have a sinful nature. And our sinful nature whispers in our ear, go ahead and do that one. God won't notice. And then we do it. And then it screams out, you can never do enough to be forgiven for that. In fact, our sinful nature has a natural religion. And that religion is you have to scratch God's back if you want God to scratch yours. So the natural religion that the devil uses our sinful nature to make us to believe is constantly that idea. You do something for God, God does something for you. If you want to be forgiven, you have to make up for your sins. If you want God to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, you have to give enough offerings. You have to do enough. You have to praise God enough. But that's not what it's about. See, the Messiah is the one who was anointed. We know when he was anointed, that was at his baptism. God the Father only speaks a few times in all the Bible, less than a handful of times. And it's one of the times he speaks, this is my son, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And so when our sinful nature is telling us, God could never forgive you for that one, we can tell it, be quiet. We can say to our sinful nature, I'm not the one God anointed to earn my forgiveness. God anointed his son to do that. We can tell our sinful nature, I'm not the one God anointed to earn his grace and favor. God's son is the one who is anointed to do that. And these people are confessing this night. They heard it. He's the Christ. How much more vehement it would be for them to reject him. But if Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who were members of the Sanhedrin, were there, what confirmation for them to stand firm and go ask for the body of our Lord at the end of that night? And so for you and I, we we get to hear that Lenten confession proclaimed by Christ's enemies. We've heard it from his own mouth, they confess, so that they know that he is the Christ. And you and I know that he's the Christ, and that's a comfort for us. Now in verse 69 comes the next thing they're confessing to hearing about him being the Messiah. Jesus tells them, but from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, if I were to stand in front of you and tell you I'm the son of man, you'd say, big deal. We're all humans. 
right? That's all I am as a son of a human. You've met my father, my mother. But for Jesus to emphasize that, he must be something else besides son of man. It would include son of man. And he's, gonna, he's already expressing that when he says he will be seated at the right hand of power of God. See, Jesus is true God who became true man so that he could save us. Now recall that God had promised Adam and Eve a savior when they fell into sin, that he would be the seed of the woman. Recall that he promised after Noah the flood that the savior would come through Shem. He promised one of Shem's descendants, Abraham, that the savior would be his descendant. And he promised David eventually that the Savior would be his descendant. And all those boring genealogies that we often grumble about in the Old Testament, they're all showing us how God is preserving that lineage of what will be the human flesh of the Savior until we get to what Matthew records and what Luke records. It seems that Matthew is recording the lineage of Joseph back to David and Luke recording the lineage of Mary back to David. And we see that Jesus is a son of David, and therefore Jesus fulfills all those psalms David wrote about the coming Messiah. But it's not just important that he be a human being, a son of man, in order to show God kept his promise that the Savior would be a descendant of David who prophesied so much about the Messiah. It's important that he be a human being so that he can be our substitute. Because you have to be a man to be a substitute for human beings. As St. Augustine said uh, around 400 AD, what he did not assume, he did not redeem. He didn't come to us as an angel. The angels don't need to be saved. He didn't come to us as an animal. He took on our human flesh to be our substitute. And he also understands the trials of temptation you and I have because he, as a man, could feel the pains of temptation. And let's face it, the devil tempted him, came after him even harder than he did Adam and Eve. Jesus, as our substitute, lived in our place. He could feel the pains of temptation for us and stand up to him. But another reason why he had to be man, brothers and sisters in Christ, is because God is eternal. God is infinite. God cannot die. He had to be a man to die in our place. He had to be a man to live in our place. What is he confessing here tonight that they're, that they're hearing? That he is the Son of Man. That's important for you and I too, because when you and I pray to our Savior, we understand He's our substitute. And we understand when we have anxieties, when we have temptations, when we have pressures and pains in life, our Savior is a human being. He's not a God who just stands back and says, Oh, you poor dear. He literally understands your pain because He's felt it. And of course, through that mystical union of all believers, you and I are connected to him in a way that defies our understanding, but he also feels our pain because he's not just God, although that is good, he's also man. But ultimately, what is it? They get, he's confessing he's the Christ and he's the son of man. But hearing those words, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. If you're at the right hand of the power of God, you've come from the right hand of power of God, you've got to be God. And so they, they quit beating around the bush. Verse 70, they all said, are you then the son of God? Now, if you're the son of God, you're saying you are God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if God had adopted him, then he's made another God, and we've already violated the first commandment, and God wouldn't do that. He said to them, I am 
what you are saying. See, God, when he talked to Moses, refers to himself as the great I am. And even in his answer, not only saying, yes, I am God, but he's using the name for God. I am what you are saying. So these are the charges that will be brought against him. They'll say, this is blasphemy. But brothers and sisters in Christ, think about it. If I were to go around claiming I was the president of the United States and demanding security and everything, I would be guilty of treason, right? But if our president claimed to be the president of the United States, well, that is his office. Jesus is not guilty of blasphemy because he is true God who became true man. Ironically, those are not the charges he'll be crucified for because the Gentiles, the Romans, they didn't care about that. That was a religious matter to them. They were concerned with ruling the people. The charges that will be brought against him go right back to being the Messiah. What is it that Pilate puts over his head on the cross? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But he had to be true God and he confesses he's true God. Why? To be holy. This is what Adam and Eve lost when they, when they lost the image of God. Because the image of God is holiness. Perfect holiness. Unblemished, ever eternal holiness. He had to be true God so that he could be perfectly holy. And being perfectly holy, he could be tempted as a man. But as God being perfectly holy, he would never fall like Adam and Eve did. Or like you and I do in our daily battle with sin. He also, besides being perfectly holy, had to be true God so that his death would be precious enough to atone for our sins. See, God can't die. He has to be man to die. But if he just dies as a man, he could only substitute it best for one person taking their punishment. God can't die, but the God-man does die. And he rises victorious. And so his death is precious enough to not only atone for your sins and my sins and the sins for the people here, but for all the sins ever committed for the whole world. There's only one sin that damns us to hell. It's unbelief. And it scares me to think that many of the people in that room that night, if they never came to faith, their own words, we heard it from his own mouth, will be the testimony against them on judgment day. How sad that is when Christians grow up with Christian families and they hear that and they reject it themselves. But what a wonderful confession to say, I've heard it from his own mouth. Here it is. I've seen where it's recorded and inspired by scriptures. He's told us he's the Christ. He's the son of man and he's the son of God. So I can be confident that he's atoned for my sins and brothers and sisters in Christ. He had to be true God to truly be the victorious champion, to have the power over the devil. But the archangel Michael, for example, is more powerful than the devil. But to be powerful over all sin, over death, and over the devil, he had to be true God to have that power. And he's already beat them. So that when you confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and true God and true man, that victory is given to you. Your body may die, but you will rise now, brothers and sisters in Christ, it saddens me when I hear Christians today who, like the Sadducees, didn't believe in the resurrection. And Christians today, many of them, often they get they don't believe scriptures. They think they're just fairy tales. And they make Jesus, they're trying to find the true historical Jesus, never mind turning to the one document that there is. 
And they make him out to be like this bumbling sort of, like the Pink Panther guys in Spectre Clouseau who bumbles through and eventually solves the mystery. Bumbling through and one day God adopts him because he's so holy. That's not the case at all. He's true God who came and took on our human flesh, came with a plan, and the plan was to save you. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, as he stands before the Sanhedrin, even if they had relented, God was going to die for our sins, but God knew that they were going to do this, and he used it to place himself on the cross. And they would confess, we've heard it from his own mouth, and it gives us comfort because then it's been recorded and we know it came from his mouth. So we can confess that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of Man, and that he is the Son of God, and therefore we are confident He is our Savior, and we are saved. Amen. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen.